Welcome back, everyone. Our speaker for the final panel today is Mr. Heng Sui Kiet, Minister for Finance. And the moderator for this panel will be Ms. Deborah Soon, Chief Customer Officer of MediaCorp. A very good afternoon to, uh, to everyone of you. And uh, let me first thank Janadas and your team at IPS for inviting me for this uh, conference. Um, when Janadas first invited me, I thought, wow. He asked me, he said, can you do the closing session? I was very happy to do the closing session because I thought the closing session meant that I could just come here and listen to you. Then he said, no, no, everyone has to earn their place and uh, you have to say a few words. So that's why I'm here to say a few words for a start. Now, um, I understand that you have an excellent uh, discussion the whole day, and I really want to, look, want to hear what you have been discussing and you know, what are some of the good ideas that you have come up with. So let's make this a very interactive session because I'm here to also listen to you. But let me start uh, with an issue which all of you are very interested in. Uh, just now, Mr. Kochunhui just told me that everyone is anxious about the budget. So I said, okay, I'll rehearse my budget statement here. <laughs> you know, when I first spoke about the budget, actually, I spoke about it last year, in the last budget, where I talked about the need to raise revenue. The newspaper reported, the media reported it, but nothing happened. Nobody threw stone at me. So, a few months later, when I visited Kinhyo Mumien constituency during a public dialogue, I said it again. I said, it's not a question of whether, but a question of when. And the newspaper again reported it, and nobody took note. Until, of course, PM was a bit puzzled. So he said, should I say something? I said, well, uh, you, I'll be delighted if you do. So he said it, and the media reported it for days and days with all kinds of speculation about the budget. But I want to make a, a very important point that really the budget is a strategic plan for Singapore. The budget cannot be about just taxes, revenue and expenditure. But why are we collecting revenue? What for? And where are we spending it? And why are we spending it? I think those are the important questions. And are we planning for the long haul? Are we planning for a better Singapore. That is the issue that I think we ought to concentrate on. And that it is not just what the budget can do, what government can do, but what all of us here in this room, all of us in Singapore, can do together. So let me start with uh, a preview of the budget. <laughs> now, I think, first, what have we been... Eh? Is government spending has more than doubled in the last decade, from 33 billion in 19, uh, financial year 2007 to 71 billion, more than doubled in financial year 2016. And this is a, a very, very high rate of increase. So, question is, where has this money gone to? Now, if you look at our spending, the right chart, the right uh, graph rather, the pie chart, shows how the $71 billion was spent. And the left 
shows what it was 10 years ago, the 33 billion. And if you just concentrate on the social part of it, it has gone up from 35% of 33 billion to 40% of 71 billion. So you can see the huge increase. And the one very interesting part of that diagram that you look at is MOE was 22.8% of the cent of the pie. In 2016, it was 17.7%. So are we spending less on education? The answer is no. Because a whole pie has grown, we're actually spending more on education. Despite the fact that we are having falling enrollments, we are closing schools, but yet we are spending more. We're spending more per child, we're spending more per individual. Partly because we're spending more in our schools, in our IHLs, and partly because we have also extended program, you know, from Skills Future and other lifelong learning program. So that's our part of the social budget. MOH was 6.7% of 33 billion, and last year it was more than doubled in percentage term to 13.7% of a much, much bigger base of 71 billion. And MSF has gone up. Is 3.5%, MCCY is 3%, and a part of manpower dealing with uh, workers, uh, worker upgrading, has gone up as well. So our social spending has gone up significantly. Now, if you look at our security spending, does it mean that we have come down? Answer is no. While the percentage has come down, the absolute number has continued to go up. And if you look at infrastructure and transport, the one very interesting set of number is MOT. MOT was 5.9% in 2007. It has gone up to 14.6%. So again, more than double. Why? It's not only the infrastructure that we are spending on, the, the rail lines and all the maintenance work in which Minister Corbyn has been working really hard on, but also the new bus services, the bus services plan, and very significant changes within just 10 years. So what is the spending going to be like in the future? Well, I'll leave you to imagine. Huh? Now, where did the money come from? The one statistics, which I, a data point which I hope that everyone bears this in mind, is that back in 2007, the contribution from reserve was 5.6%. And in 2016, the contribution from reserve is 17.3%. Of all the ways that you can cut our revenue sources, it is the single largest category today. More than corporate income tax, more than GST, more than personal income tax. To put it another way, if we hadn't had those numbers, if we hadn't used contributions from reserves, what it means is that your personal income tax could have doubled, GST could have doubled, corporate income tax could have doubled, and all of which are not terribly great solutions. So I know many of you think that in the survey in, in, that you did, was that many more people think about, well, actually we should be spending more of reserves. And it's a subject that we, we can discuss in uh, great detail. But I, I thought that we must have some perspective on where the money is coming from. Now, let me, uh, 
now move on to uh, uh, three topics. I've shown you three slides, and I thought I'll talk about three issues which um, to, to set the stage for our further discussion. Now, the first issue I want to touch on is that we are undergoing a major demographic transition. And this major demographic transition would have implications on many of the issues that you and I and every Singaporean, everyone staying in, living in Singapore is concerned with. You know, whether it's an issue relating to healthcare, financial adequacy, mobility, transport, jobs, the future economy, each and every of these issues is a very, very big topic by itself. And if we can spend hours and hours in just one conference for the whole day just talking about one issue. And indeed, I think we ought to drill deep into each of these issues to understand what it all means. Now, for instance, in healthcare, how would the demand pattern change in the coming years as our population goes through that demographic transition? What sort of uh, illness will be more prevalent? And how would that manifest itself? And on the supply side, do we have enough doctors, healthcare workers, healthcare professionals to manage this? Do we have enough of the right expertise? Where, do we, where is the care best uh, done? Is it in the acute hospital? Is it in the community hospital? Is it in the community? Is it at home? And for each of these, what are the pros and cons? And how do we go about deciding on what is the best system. And it's not just looking at it from the point of view of, you know, just an acute hospital versus a community hospital. We have to look at it in totality and say, well, for this particular issue, what is the best way of uh, dealing with it? What is the best way of managing it so that we can be successful in this? And the same with education, the same with uh, defence, the same with uh, security. Our changing demographic pattern will have significant impact on each of these single item issues. If you look at, for example, the economy, what does a changing demographic mean for the economy? It is going to be a significant set of changes. So that is my uh, first point, that we, each issue requires very useful and deep discussion, and I'm fortunate that in the Ministry of Finance, I had an opportunity to discuss many of these issues with my colleague because um, everybody needs money, and I said that, well, then we have to talk about what are you going to do and how much we can afford. So that's one, right? The first, first issue that we have to think about. Now, the second point I want to make is that beyond a single issue, we really must think of these issues together. Now, how would Issue A interact with issue B. How would healthcare interact with the economy and jobs and with uh, social care? Yeah. Our, if we were to take a segmented approach and say, well, you know, this is issue A, this is issue B, this is issue C, and I will tackle each one separately, I think we are going to be lost because we are not, we might be working across uh, purpose and we might, the outcome may not be as good as if we could work together. So, uh, let me just uh, illustrate with uh, uh, two examples. And I know, I understand that there are many uh, academics in this room. Janadas told me about one third of you, of, of the audience here, are academics. When I was in the Ministry of Education, the professors in the university told me 
that, do you know what is a PhD? Is a PhD is somebody who knows more and more about something and less and less about everything. <laughs> now, no disrespect to our professors here, but what I was very struck by when I was in MOE and now even in uh, MOF was to see the large number of cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary studies, you know, centres, study centres, policy think tanks and so on, across all universities in the world. This is a new growth industry. And you think about it. If studying an issue requires so much, it requires that cross-disciplinary effort, how much more do we need to do if we are going to do something about an issue? That the policy work and the actual work related to a particular issue will be even better dealt with, far better dealt with, by a sort of a cross-disciplinary approach. And therefore, in dealing with many of these issues, we need to take that view. So let me just give you two illustrations of uh, what I mean. One is uh, the interaction between work, health, and uh, financial security. I think many of you are aware that you know, Japan is also facing a very rapidly aging uh, population. And in Japan, they have found that the older workers who continue working regardless of whether they need the income or not, are actually healthier because the work provides a platform for social interaction which staying at home just, you know, does not provide. And so it, we cannot be thinking about work in isolation from health, in isolation from financial security. So that's an example. Now, another example has got to do with, uh, this is our own experience on dealing with uh, health and social care. I think many of you are familiar with our PGP package, the Pioneer Generation package. And as part of that package, when we first started it, we were quite concerned as to whether um, our Pioneer Generation will understand the intricacies because many of our schemes are quite intricate. So we then appointed Pioneer Generation ambassadors. And these are neighbours staying in the vicinity who will, go, who will go out and explain this package to our Pioneer Generation. And what was interesting was that um, there were many of them who then raised issues which are not about healthcare. You know, there are issues, some of it relates to finance, some of it relates to uh, relating with their family members, some of it has got to do with the fact that um, they are staying alone and they are lonely and therefore they need uh, some other sources of care. And of course, the other thing which we found was that Actually, for every of those issues, we have some agency, some ministries, and some people who are looking after this issue. And what it shows very clearly is that there is a gap at the front line, you know, that there is a gap in terms of how well we are delivering that service to the, to the seniors who need it. So we then piloted this idea. Uh, I mean, the Pioneer Generation Ambassadors did very useful cross-referral, and we uh, we, we achieved some good outcome. So at the last budget, I had a very good discussion with uh, Minister Gan Kim Yong, and we decided that we will look at uh, a community network of seniors. And the community network of seniors basically are, again, neighbours staying in the vicinity, in the same neighbourhood, who would 
explain to seniors, not just pioneer generation, who explain to seniors living in the area what are some of the activities around, around them, what are some of the needs. And it has turned out with very, very interesting uh, results. I mean, I'm very uh, happy that you know, we were able to meet a very important and growing need in our society that way. And we have to think about going through, looking at the issues in a much more cross-disciplinary way across agencies, across ministries. So just about more than two weeks back, I had a very interesting discussion with Minister Gan, uh, Minister Grace Fu, Minister Desmond Lee, and uh, Speaker Tan Chuan Jin, because all of them are very concerned about the issues of seniors. And we had an excellent discussion on what we need to do differently uh, in the coming years. So uh, please be patient, wait for the budget, and they will talk about this. Yeah. Now, um, the I'm, I'm very glad that we started talking about this because a few days back, the, I read in the New York Times, International New York Times, in the, in the Straits Times in the first instance, by the way, and then in the International New York Times for more detail, that the UK has appointed a Minister of Loneliness. <laughs> Have you all seen that report? Yeah. Well, if you go to Google and Google Minister of Loneliness, you'll get all the reports. Now, why I must say the UK is the first country in the world to appoint a Minister of Loneliness. Why are they doing that? So I look up what the news report said. Now, this came from the uh, Joe Cox Commission. And the Joe Cox Commission found that 9 million people are either often or always feeling lonely. And that sense of loneliness affects, actually affects all age groups, but it affects the elderly even more. Because 75, majority of those who are 75 and above live alone. And in, in my own work in a constituency, I noticed that as well, that you know, if we go to some of the households, there are some of our seniors who, who are living alone. Now, interestingly, after the report came out, the UK, while the first to act, is not alone in that. The surgeon, former Surgeon General of the US then stated that, while well, in the US, he estimates that 40% of the people suffer from loneliness of some one kind or another. And being a former Surgeon General, he talked about how that is a health epidemic. So it is very important for us not to look at issues in isolation and you know, whether we're going to have a Minister of Loneliness, I don't know. But I have to say that I, I'm really very glad that my colleagues uh, in the ministries dealing with this, you know, uh, Kim Yong, Grace, Desmond, and uh, Speaker Chuan Jin, have been very, very concerned that they've been working together on this and that we probably started this, uh, this work a lot earlier and in fact, uh, Minister Gan and Minister Desmond Lee co-chair the Committee on Aging, and they've been doing a lot of work. So we are actually not starting from scratch. We're starting from a position of strength, and I hope that we can do more, and I'll be happy to hear your views on what we can do on this. Now, let me move on to very quickly to my third point, which is the implications of this change on Singapore. And the one issue which you all had discussed earlier today, which is aging is a global phenomenon. 
Now, if aging is a global phenomenon, what is the implication? I mean, while we take, you know, while we are not the only society that is aging rapidly, many other societies are. And what is the what are the implications? Now I would say that there are plus and minuses. The plus is that we now can work with many more countries to see how we can tackle common challenges, right? in particular in the, area of, in the area of healthcare. Solutions that are tried in one place could probably be useful uh, to Singapore and so on, and that hopefully the, the global budget for doing research uh, on this area uh, will, will increase and that we can all do it together. So that's uh, the plus. But the minus is this. We don't know how ageing will affect other societies. In fact, we cannot even be sure how ageing will affect our own society. What is the impact on the psychology of our people? Do, will our people become more withdrawn, as we have seen in some societies? Will there be a withdrawal from the global system? And already you are seeing that globalisation is not something to be taken for granted. Because if the stresses and strains are great, partly because of ageing and the, the, the inability for older workers to train, retrain and learn new things, then you can expect that many other societies will think about protecting themselves first. Right? They will make their own society great again first before thinking about the impact on others. And what is the impact on us in, in that scenario? Now, fortunately, I must say that uh, it is to great credit of uh, former Minister George Hill when we started the free trade agreement almost 20 years ago. We now have a whole range of free trade agreement that provides a bit of insulation, but again, not something to be taken for granted. That how the global order can change very quickly. I don't think anybody would have expected that the America would withdraw from TPP just like that, but it happened. So, so let us be very careful about what is happening globally. And the other two global forces that are going to have a significant impact on us is first, the advances in technology. The, the Germans talk about Industry 4.0. And there's a very lively debate on, the, on this whole issue of how ICT will affect even the traditional manufacturing industry. But the impact of ICT and on technology in general, on many industries, will not be easy to predict. What is, the, what is the impact of genomics on healthcare? What is the impact of genomics and ICT together on healthcare? And a whole range of issues are, are thrown up, not just a social and ethical issue, but also very important economic issues. And while we talk about our ageing population and how we need to prepare our older workers better for changes, we have to bear in mind that our education system was not as good as it is today when we first became independent. In fact, many of my classmates in my primary school uh, did, not make it, did not make it past the PSLE. And uh, you know, they started work years ago when they were young. And so today, they are about the same age as me in their 50s. What the, if you ask, talk about retraining, it's going to be quite difficult. But, so fortunately, I think our education system has improved a, a great deal. But when we talk about, think about the future of work, the future of industry, the future of technology, we have 
to take a very concerted effort to think about how we can redesign jobs, how we may need to extend re retirement age, or for the matter, rethink the whole concept of retirement. I mean, why should people retire? But even as we do that, we'll be very careful that so we do not deprive the young people of opportunities. And what is the balance that we need to create in our society to manage that? It is not a simple issue, but an issue which we ought to grapple with uh, early. So, the impact of industry changes, the technological changes throughout the global economy will affect each and every one of us, regardless of your age, and it will affect our uh, elder workers even more. The interesting thing is that I, I just saw some of the initiatives that are tried out in Japan, and how in Japan they are looking at the use of robots to enable older workers to continue to do fairly difficult manual jobs. Because a robot takes over the hard work of uh, lifting all those heavy boxes, and the, and the elder person can continue working. I went to a factory in, in Singapore recently and look at how they redesigned their jobs to enable this lady, who is now in her late 50s, to continue working in that company. And I was really very impressed. So I asked the management, I said, did you do this deliberately? Or is it just, you know, happened to be an afterthought? He said, no. We're very conscious that we must use technology because otherwise we will be displaced as a company. But at the same time, we also want to create opportunity for the workers who have been with us for so many years, so loyally, and therefore we make a special effort to redesign jobs. I say, well, you are a very global company. What are you doing elsewhere? And they are doing something similar elsewhere. So I thought, wow, my respect for this company went up a few notches. They were thinking hard. Because when they first told me they were going to get workers to talk to me, I thought, well, maybe this was a good PR on the part. But after talking to the workers themselves, I think, well, this company is quite serious about it. And I was really happy that we have such a company in Singapore. Now, so that's uh, about the future, how you will interact with technology. Now, the other um, finest global force that I want to talk about is the shifting economic fortunes. Now, this graph here it came from McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, don't take the dots literally. I mean, these are approximation of uh, centers of gravity of the global economy from AD 1 to today. And essentially, in the earlier part, Asia was the center of many economic activities. Whether you are looking at China and India, and for many years, China and India, who were agricultural economy and who mastered agriculture, and where agriculture was the game in town, were the most successful countries in growing their population and growing their economy. But gradually, it was England which started the Industrial Revolution. And when I was a student in England doing economics, the first course I had to do was the Industrial Revolution and why the Industrial Revolution happened in England. So the Industrial Revolution spread to the rest of Europe and then thereafter, you know, moved over to America 
and the center of gravity of the global economy moved westwards uh, to the US. And then gradually, as the Asian economies rejoined the global economy, given their weight, the center of gravity started shifting back. And there are some projections that over the next five years, the next 10 years, the center of gravity will continue moving to this part of the world. Now, this is going to happen at a time when many economies in Asia are also aging. And what is the impact of an aging economy as well as a growing economy, as well as a technologically more advanced global economy mean for all of us here? I don't think I have the full answer. I've seen many reports speculating on the future of jobs, the future of industry, the future fortune. Um, I'm not prepared to bet that it will be one way or the other, but I'm prepared to bet that it will be different and that the more alert we are to this, the better it is. So to sum up, I would say that when we think about the ageing issue, it is important that we don't look at it as a single issue. We don't look at it from an agency-centric point of view. It's important for us within Singapore to work across not just within government agencies, but with the people sector, you know, with the private sector. What is it that the private sector will have to do differently in the way they think about the economy, jobs, and their role in uh, providing some of the support? What is it that our BWOs and our, you know, which many of you are doing excellent job, you know, ex what is it that we can do? What is it that we can do in our own neighborhood? What is it that you and I can do together? So, so that is uh, uh, one point that I would like to make. The other point is that what we are seeing is not a single change, but re really a series of changes. A series of, series of changes happening across space, across time. And what that means is that how these changes are going to interact with one another, we cannot predict with accuracy. So what is the best way of dealing with it? I think the best way of dealing with it is that we can be sure that the rate of change will be faster, not just for us, but for everyone else around the world. It means that it can be more unsettling, and all the more, it is critical that we stay together to tackle these changes. And if we can put our minds and hearts together, I think we can do a lot more. So yes, our population is aging, but we can be an ageless society. So on that note, thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, Mr. Heng. The last time we were here together on this stage was actually two years ago, January 2016. And that was just about five months before you had your stroke. I'm sure all of us in this room are very relieved and thankful that you are about your remarkable recovery. Um, I don't think anybody, you haven't said very much about it, but I would like to ask you in the context of the importance of succession planning, how your health is and how you're feeling. Well, uh, thank you, Deborah, for, for that question. Oh, well, I have to say that I have been extremely, I'm 
extremely lucky and I'm very grateful for you know, the care that I had. From the time that I collapsed in the cabinet, when we were having a cabinet meeting, and how my colleagues in cabinet gave me excellent first aid that really uh, you know, allowed, ensured that I had no brain damage to the, uh, the team at uh, NNI and Tan Tok Seng Hospital. I mean, they did an excellent job. And I found out after the event that from the surgeon to the, the team that was doing physiotherapy to the rehabs, that they had, on their own accord, looked at what were the best ways of dealing with uh, incidents like this and started many of these things more than 10 years ago in Singapore. So I'm really grateful to our healthcare team for what, for that spirit of, you know, seeking to do their best in everything that they do, and taking their initiative to learn all these things, you know, and practicing it long ago. And so it was not an inexperienced team because they had started all this, they had tried, and it's a team with tremendous uh, dedication and professionalism. So I I, I hope that even as we talk about dealing with uh, ageing issues, dealing with healthcare issues, that we will continue to provide our support to our healthcare team because it's going to be important for each and every one of us. In fact, my doctors were surprised. They say, well, Mr. Hing, actually, on the, uh, on the usual rating, you are low risk. So I say, years ago, when I was in the police, we used to have this message to all, uh, all our residents that low risk doesn't mean no risk. So just take care of yourself and, uh, you know, just uh, take care of the things you do. Uh, but I'm very glad that, uh, you know, I'm back to work. I, I'm doing a lot of things as I used to do. Uh, except that I take my exercise even more seriously now. <laughs> yeah. Mr. I think your remarkable recovery <laughs> is also very much due to your determination and resilience, and it says a lot about, to me, I feel, your ability to bear things with a smile. <laughs> so I'd like to congratulate you on that, and then ask you the next question, which is that, having recovered so well, how ready are you today to lead the 4G team? <laughs> I did say I would ask difficult questions. Yeah. Well, if you have listened to what I said earlier carefully, <laughs> I did. The, the answer is actually there. Now, um, first of all, on, on the 4G team and how we're working together, I must say that we are working together very well. It is, uh, it is a team of uh, serious-minded people who are trying to do their best. And I really uh, enjoy working with uh, everyone in the team. And I would say it's not just the 4G team. In fact, it's the entire cabinet. I mean, PM sets a very, very good... Uh, example, and it is a team that is very cohesive. I mean, we, we discuss issues every week uh, across a whole range of subjects, from security to uh, uh, social care, healthcare, to education, to the economy. So it's a very uh, serious-minded team. But the one thing which I feel that we have to deal with in the, in the coming years is the growing complexity for Singapore. Growing, growing complexity in governing Singapore, in having an agreement on what matters to us as a country, 
and the growing complexity in the external environment. So earlier on, uh, I noticed that a lot of our discussion on the, whether it's about the budget or whether it's about healthcare tended to be focused on a particular issue. But the only way that we can uh, make a breakthrough in, uh, across all in, in this issue is to really look at it in the global context. Because we are, after all, you know, <laughs> what others call us a little red dot in this world, right? But a little red dot can be a shining red dot if we can get our act together. And that if we are not narrowly inward-looking, because if we keep just looking inwards, we'll miss the big opportunities that are happening around the world. We'll miss the big opportunities. Uh, uh, we'll miss the big challenges that are coming our way. And we'll miss the big opportunities that are happening. And uh, it doesn't mean that we have the full means to deal with all that but we need to be able to work on it. And be very clear that we need to uh, function cohesively as a team. So to share an example, when I was uh, running the Monetary Authority and we had the global financial crisis, I once spoke to a very prominent central banker in a very big country, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, you know, we in Asia have been discussing this subject, and what you're doing has a terribly negative effect on all of us because the global flow of funds is huge. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, Mr. Heng, I have to do what I have to do. You will do what you have to do. <laughs> and uh, that was the extent of uh, help and friendliness we got. But he's not wrong. I mean, he is under tremendous pressure domestically. He's under tremendous pressure to get things right. And our uh, calculation too is that indeed if he can get it right, we'll all be better off as well. But the fact that, you know, even in the international cooperation, where it's one of the most co cooperative forums that I've uh, ever at, uh, joined, there are some of these issues that we need to deal with. But when it comes to what is happening in Singapore, the the need for us to work cohesively together uh, is even more important. And when I meet our business people, for instance, I tell them that I'm very happy if you make more money. And they say, why? I say, the more money you make, the more taxes I collect. <laughs> and it's the same with uh, our workers. I mean, our objective cannot be, we cannot be at cross-purpose, right? That if Singapore grows and prospers, if Singapore is harmonious, each and every one of us benefit. Now, the question is, how do we do it in an age of greater complexity? And I would say that we need leadership, not just at the political level. I'm very happy that Singaporeans believe that good political leadership is important for the country. I mean, this is a great plus. There are many countries who really make fun of their leaders, make fun of the political leaders, and I don't think that is a healthy uh, trend because if leadership in the country is uh, mocked at, where people have no respect, then I don't think the country can move in the same direction. And in fact, in many places, unfortunately, political contest has exacerbated that. So one group is very happy to uh, make fun of the other group, sabotage the other group. I hope that we will never have a shutdown in our government because we can't agree, you know. But it happens. And if we look around the world, 
It does happen. I hope that we can go beyond that. That each and every one of you in this room, in your leadership position, in, in the private sector, in the people sector, and in the government sector, can come together and say, well, what is it that we want to achieve together? And how do we provide leadership, not just at a national political level, but at every level, in our companies, in our trade associations, you know, how can our trade associations come together to work better and in our uh, social sector and across social sector, between economic sector and social sector. I had one uh, very interesting example recently where you know, the, the corporate sector is helping in the corporate philanthropy and looking at how their workers can help uh, to provide social work, to provide support for those in need. And I thought that's excellent. And we should encourage more of that. Many years ago, when I was running TDB, I had a few requests from uh, companies, food companies, who wanted to take part in the exhibition in Germany, and each wanting to exhibit its own food. So I said, well, each of you asking for this amount of grant, you'll have a small little stand. People will not even notice. I said, why don't you all go together? So <laughs> my staff came back and said, don't mind if we tell you the answer. I say, yeah, tell me. He said, well, the business people say that you are such a silly bureaucrat. You don't understand business. We are competitors. How can we go together? You know? So, more recently, I was delighted that one of the associations who has been working very closely together is the food industry. And not only are they going for exhibitions together, you know, talking about Singapore food together, they are also looking at how they can share kitchens together. Each of them by themselves by, cannot afford their expensive machine because, it is, because the volume is so huge. But together they can, and they are now working on all this. So we have to learn how to cooperate and compete at the same time. Minister, just coming back to the issue of taxes, only certainties in life are death and taxes. And almost certain that in Budget 2018, on 19th of February, which you will deliver, you will announce some sort of broad increase in taxes to fund, as we talk about, healthcare and infrastructure issues as the population ages. Instead of asking you on specific things, as you said, instead of every single tax thing, I'd like to ask for your approach in terms of a macro view. What are your considerations for trade-offs? What are your considerations in terms of policy when you are designing a tax policy to take us into the future? and when you know definitely we have to raise taxes. And a follow-up question to that, before people accuse me of hogging your time, is that what do you think the government needs to do differently to communicate the changes and to bring the public along? So on, a, on our first question of you know, what are the main considerations, I think there are many economists in this room, and all economists will analyse tax issues in terms of two factors. One is efficiency, and the other one is equity. Efficiency as in... Is this the best way to collect the taxes? Would it create such distortion that um, it will lead to a misallocation of resources in our country? It will lead to a diminution of effort. It will take away incentive for people to work and so on. So that is a sort of efficiency consideration that we'll have to definitely have to consider. And the other one is equity. Is it fair and equitable? And that is um, an issue which has more to do with judgment and how well we accept it. And I have to say that there are uh, trade-offs between the short run and the long run. In the short run, it may appear 
unfair that such a tax has been imposed because in terms of fairness, people may feel that, you know, fairness and equity, people may think, oh, this is not fair. Um, but in the longer run, it may be more efficient. And in fact, a more efficient tax in the longer run may be turn out to be more equitable because your pie, the entire pie grows. And I had an opportunity to discuss this issue with uh, several finance ministers in our region, uh, including the finance minister of China and India, I mean, two huge economies, on, on this issue. And it's the same challenge that they have. Efficiency, equity, and in many instances also, whether it is politically feasible to do it. And uh, we will have to think of all these issues. But I do hope, as, as I said, that we do not look at it as a tax increase or a tax decrease, and we do not see the budget as whether you know, our goodies given up, given out. Because if we look at it, then I think we are missing the point of the budget. Because the budget is not about giving out goodies per se. It is about how we channel resources for the long-term future of Singapore. It is a strategic plan. It's not, uh, it's not Santa Claus coming out you know, around Christmas to give everybody something and making everybody feel good. Or coming out to rob uh, somebody. Yeah. Neither am I pretending that you know, this is Robin Hood doing great things. But rather, I think this is a fairly serious set of plans for us to think about what is it that we as a country, as a people, want to go uh, together right, going forward. And it's not just about what Singapore is doing. Everything that we do, we have to have a global reference. What else are other people doing? Yeah. I don't think we can say, let's increase corporate taxes by X amount when the US has just slashed its uh, taxes. Right? That doesn't mean that I will not change anything. Right? <laughs> I'm just saying as an example that uh, we, need, uh, we need reference point and that we must understand that we operate in the interdependent world and what others do will have an effect on us. Yes, and you talked about strategic plans several times already. How are you going... What do you think we need to do differently to sell this message to the public? The yeah. ballot box and the political downsides which economists don't have to worry about. Well, so I, think, I, I do think that we... I hope that uh, we get everyone, you know, not, not just people in business, not just academics, uh, to get interested in the budget because this is what we're hoping to do, that at least everybody understands some of the basics of our budget. Where does the money come from? Where does the money go? It is very easy for any single group to say, please give me more. But giving me more means I either take more from somebody or I give less to somebody. Right? The book has to balance. And I must say that uh, you know, our founding generation of leaders have been very wise to build very hard measures into our budget process to make sure that future finance ministers don't just fiddle with all these numbers and, you know, just to look good. And I really think that, uh, as for me, in, a, in, in this position, it is very important to do the right thing. Because if we do the right thing, then I think Singapore will continue to have a good future. And I hope that I can convince uh, many of you here and uh, outside this room that we will do the right thing because it is not about one election or two elections or you know, 
or about the pressure from one point or another point. It is really about our future. Thank you, Minister Heng. With that, I'd like to open questions to the floor. I'm sure the people here want to convince Minister to do the right thing and give them more money. Anybody? <laughs> yes, over there. If you'd like to suggest how I can uh, raise revenue, I'm also open. <laughs> um, I'm Ho Tai An from the NTU Centre for Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. Um, my question and comment arises from uh, Minister Heng from your... Uh, mentioning the Ministry of Loneliness. I'm wondering if the government is ready to start a ministry for the aged. Oh, I've got a name, nicer name, uh, the Silver Ministry. Right. Now, um, and one of the things that we do well here is career counselling, right? But when we talk of retirement planning, it normally um, entails financial planning. And I'm wondering whether we could institutionalize the kind of help that a particular demographic might need. So far, I've been talking social welfare and welfare is for the older generation. And there was a graph, very vivid one, which showed that the, the, uh, the, the, the jobs in which the elderly are most involved in tend to be the cleaning and the low-skilled jobs. Now, I'm talking about the post-war baby boomers who are graduates and who are professionals and so on, um, particularly, say, in my own field, the university. Once you retire, right, and it made me think of two things. There are two things that when somebody retires who are uh, highly skilled, you know, highly educated. One is the, what Mr. Ravian Menon this morning called tacit knowledge that they have, the institutional wisdom and knowledge that we lose when they retire. The other, which is what your, uh, your mention of the Ministry of Loneliness points out, is the potential for, as another speaker pointed out, anxiety disorders, your loss of identity, isolation. Suddenly, you're somebody in that particular, and suddenly. So how do we uh, institutionalize, say, retirement counseling or ministry that matches these people, right, without threatening the jobs of the younger people, right? And, you know, um, Minister, uh, DPM, uh, uh, Teo mentioned that, and he's chiefly anecdotal about principal who found something for an uh, excellent uh, retiring uh, 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 member of staff to do. But this is all very ad hoc. Could it be institutionalized, regularized, and that a resource, you know, so that aging is not seen as a liability, but a resource that we can tap. And at the same time, prevent the kind of loneliness, isolation, that can lead to mental illness, you know, and may therefore be a larger draw upon our resources later on. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Prof Ko, for your very, uh, two very good questions. I think I'll answer your second question first on the whether can we insti uh, institutionalise or find a better way to provide the sort of matching. And your point that uh, there is a quite a significant difference in the... Uh, experience and educational profile of our uh, elders. At that point, is a very valid one. Um, a few years back, when I was uh, doing our Singapore conversations, one of the most enjoyable sessions I went to was with uh, RSVP. And RSVP, as you know, is, is start, was started by a group who used to teach at NUS. And they continued to go back, and the group has expanded significantly. And they were uh, doing a number of things including first learning, how they continue to learn. And since they were all professors before, they said, well, we can also teach. And the interesting uh, change that they made was to 
download very good YouTube videos. And based on the YouTube videos, it's, it's like a, having a guest lecturer, lecture on a very specific topic. And one of the uh, topics that they, uh, they showed me was this uh, clip by Harvard professor, I think it was Sandel, on the social justice. And it was a very interesting uh, set of people because they had very animated discussion and they thought, wow, this is, this is great. And over and above that, they were also doing a lot of uh, good work in the, in, the, in the neighborhood. So I would say that this is something very much to be encouraged and I'm glad that NUS uh, offered them the use of the space for them to do some of this. And we have to think about how we can make better use of the one segment of our population who are highly who are highly educated in their times in and who in fact continue to educate many Singaporeans. And I would say that many of our uh, university lecturers, our teachers and all that were in that, are in that category because they were the best educated of their generation and they went on to do many interesting things for our society. So there's no reason why uh, we, you know, if they would like to continue to contribute in some ways, we should find better ways of doing it. So your suggestion about how can we better match uh, demand and supply, so to speak, is something which I, I will take back to uh, Minister Gan and Desmond to see what we can do, and Minister Graceful, who is uh, overseeing this area. Now, on the question of should we have a ministry of whatever you call it, silver support, aging, and so on, uh, I would say that the need for functions related to that is there. Will a ministry do a better job of it? I am a little more reserved about it. I, the reason is that um, the reality of many of these issues require an inter-ministry approach. If we want to be efficient about the, our use of resource and without expanding bureaucracy, we have to find ways in which existing agencies can work better together. And the one important change that is happening is information technology. With information technology, we could refer cases of needs much more efficiently across ministry, across agencies, without having to physically locate everybody in one place, and that that's the only place that people can go and uh, get help. So we have to think about how IT solutions, for example, ICT solutions, allow us to do more than what we are able to do today. But in terms of understanding the needs from different angles and not looking at it just through a single lens of whether it's ageing or whether it's the economy, I think that will be very useful. And I would say that, as I mentioned in my speech earlier on, practically every ministry will have to deal with this demographic transition. And the demographic transition is not just about ageing, because we cannot be just looking after a group of people who are growing older and ignoring the young, because the young will also grow old later. And so the question is, how do we prepare our young better as well? You know, having learned the lessons of the last 50 years, uh, what did we do, what did we not do? We have to think about what we should be doing better and doing differently. And that was why, when I was in the Ministry of Education, uh, I spoke about every school a good school. Uh, Kage was with me in MOE then. And when I first raised it, the, re the reason I raised it is, by the way, is that many of my uh, colleagues, our teachers, our professionals, believe very deeply in that. 
that we want to give every child the best possible foundation for them to continue learning. And that whichever school you happen to be in because of a PSLE test score, that the future is there, the future is open, we have many more pathways, and therefore I, I spoke about every school a good school. Now, it was not meant, it was not a, a political slogan. I mean, it's something which my colleagues in MOE and I believe deeply in about how we can give everyone the best possible opportunity when they are young, build a strong foundation so that they can continue to be effective and continue to learn when they grow older. And if you think about 30 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm sure the technology will continue to improve even more. I'm sure the Asian economies, if they continue to grow, will mean that we have to change and restructure our economy again and again. And in the face of all these changes that are happening, uh, we cannot just be focusing on one group and then, you know, 20 years down the road, some other minister will have to deal with, oh, now what do we do with ageing of this next group? It, it cannot be. That we have to think in fairly holistic terms and say, what do I need to do for those who are 50 and below today? What are the challenges they have to face in 20 years' time? And in particular, what do we have to do for our school-going children today? What is the best foundation we can give them? And I know many of you in this room will have, you know, uh, parents that you have to look after and also children that you have to look after. And that ours and our own, yeah, your own welfare they have to look after. So our uh, approach to the issue must be to address the different groups and think hard about how the needs will change and grow and how our resources will change and how do we match our resources to the needs. Is there anybody else would like to ask a question? Over there? Yes. Lady, over the mic over there. Okay. Hello, uh, my name is Safra and I'm from Republic Polytechnic. So I, I know right now uh, Dr. Heng and the moderator are discussing more towards the budget uh, as he's the Minister of Finance. But I would like to pose a question uh, in light to the discussion that we had over the past few hours. And I would especially like to highlight the last panel, uh, especially uh, uh, Professor Culling. He actually mentioned that welfare is the most important thing. And even if uh, the policies does not really support GDP increasing, uh, it doesn't make sense if that people are not very happy about it, even if GDP increases. So uh, regarding that, uh, I would like to uh, talk about it. So uh, uh, before I propose a question, I would just like to give a brief context to, uh, to the question first. So having a higher GDP uh, can help the country to grow, but I know that it's important to have very happy citizens as well. So I think one way it is to actually dispel the myth that here uh, having high GDP necessarily means that population is not happy. So higher GDP can also mean that more money can be spent by the government on dealing with like mental illnesses on the country. Maybe something that a lower GDP uh, country couldn't afford. So my question would be that what would be the priority for the government to pursue from now on? So high, is it high GDP first, then deal with mental issues later, or take care of like welfare of population first? Then the happier citizens will then work better to achieve like higher input, and then uh, which will lead to the higher GDP. 
So, in the end, I would like to propose this question. Then how can then Singapore maintain good GDP and uh, real GDP while not compromising on welfare of uh, all the residents in Singapore? Well, thank you, Safra, for your question. By the way, you, you said you're a student in Republic Poly? Yeah. Oh, what, what are you studying? Are you studying economics of some kind? Um, no. <laughs> I'm doing, uh, I'm from the School of Applied Science. I'm doing oh. uh, a diploma in Biomedical Sciences. Oh, okay. Oh, that's excellent. Well, well thank you for your very uh, thoughtful question. Uh, first, you know, whether your observation that whether uh, higher GDP will allow us to do more things, and the answer is certainly. And somehow, there is... Um, uh, you know, different people have different beliefs about GDP and about GDP and happiness. And the question is whether is GDP a good measure of a sense of well-being in the society? Lots of debate on, on this issue and about how GDP numbers, in particular in recent years, do not quite give a full picture of a sense of well-being. So for instance, many people say, look, you can now go on the internet and have huge amount of uh, data at your fingertip, which in previous years would have cost you a huge amount of money just to get that. And you can go onto YouTube and watch a whole range of videos for free. Are, you, are we not happier as a result of that? And indeed, I mean, GDP is not a perfect measure of uh, well-being. And some people feel that in Indeed, GDP underestimates, and the current GDP measures have its flaws. So I, I would say that uh, we, every set of measure will have its limitation, and it's important that we recognize those limitations when we use those numbers. But you also made a very interesting point that, well, with higher GDP, are we then able to spend more on things that matter? You know, for instance, uh, greater healthcare and so on. And the answer is certainly. I also don't belong to the school who says that, you know, as long as things are free and uh, the internet, free internet and uh, free Wikipedia and YouTube makes us happier, therefore we don't have to worry about that. Because there are some things which indeed, uh, you know, like what you mentioned about healthcare, they will require real resources. Uh, you can't just get someone to say, be a healthcare worker and I'll pay you by watching YouTube. <laughs> you know, somebody has to be paid, somebody... We, we are not totally uh, divorced from material needs and wants, and however imperfect a measure, you will still need some of that. But is GDP growth the only number for measuring the sense of well-being of our people? The answer is no. And indeed, we do need to think about how we can do this. So there's been many, there have been many attempts recently to try and do this, including uh, you know, issues like the Human Development Index, and uh, others that talk about incorporating happiness. When this issue of happiness was raised, I decided that I would go to Bhutan uh, to have a look at it. And I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about the, the measure. I have a few books on this subject about happiness, as well as uh, a lot of nice chats with people there talking about how that happiness index uh, have affected them as a society. So I would say that I'm a moderate person and I would say that let's look at all the measures in a very balanced way. But on your next question, what is our priority? 
Should our priority be to grow GDP then we have resources to do things or have resources to do things uh, regardless of our GDP? The answer is that I think we should do both together. And that is why in every budget, we devote some resources to growing our economy, to growing our people, to helping our companies grow, and some resources to tackling uh, social issues. And unlike any other city uh, economy, you know, if you look at all city economies in the world, nobody needs to cater for a defence budget. But we do. And we have a big defence budget. We have a budget for internal security. And we also have budget relating to protecting our environment, for our end parks and so on, for our uh, PUB. And therefore, our needs are actually very comprehensive. So the only way that we can meet these needs, continue to meet these needs well, is that A, we have to be very careful in our spending. We have to make sure that our agencies take this spending seriously and achieve the outcome that we uh, hope for, that we intend. And second, that we take our revenue sources very seriously as well. Several finance ministers in other countries who I met recently have asked if they could come and study our collection system. You know, how do we collect taxes? Because they have read that we have a very low leakage rate. I.e. people who ought to pay taxes do pay. That we have a system of you know, keeping taxes low but yet keeping collection effective. And I hope that we continue to do that. I'm not saying that we are perfect, but the fact that we are able to uh, have uh, that level of uh, collection and the fact that our people are generally uh, honest about this is, is a plus that we need to keep in our society. And if we can continue to do that, be very careful about how we collect revenue and be very careful about how we spend and make sure that we focus on outcome then I think we can do both together, grow our GDP and grow our sense of well-being. Okay, I think we have time for only one more question. Is there any from the floor? Mr. Zainal Abidin, please. Um, <coughs> excuse me. May I? Sorry, where are you? We can't see quite here because yeah. the lights are quite... But, um, Mr. Uh, William Wan again. Yes, um, yes. All right, then let's have two questions. If William okay. like to go May first. I? Well, we'll have two questions. Yeah. And then one by Zainal, and one by Mr. Zainal. Zainal Abidin later uh, after that. Minister, sir. May I? Could you please Go ahead. introduce yourself? Uh, I know you are, but maybe... Well, okay. Um, we're all very happy. You're very well, sir. Um, I, we, I've been listening earlier on to speakers who talk about two very key things going forward. One is technology, and the other one is um, uh, technology and globalization. But there is the third one, which is what we're talking about today, which is gerontology, uh, the science of aging. I think we should put the three together. So my question to you, sir, is that we heard about redesigning, and I'm asking two questions, quick one. One is, uh, we've been uh, thinking a lot about being number one, and that makes us move very, very fast. And uh, when we think about many of our seniors, it's very hard for them to catch up. Is there any desire to redesign our thinking so that we don't have to be number one all the time? That's the first question. The second question, sir, is that uh, uh, in the budget, are you going to have some money put there to redesign some, uh, some kind of uh, work going forward uh, for seniors so that it's easier for them to do? Thank you, sir. Uh, okay, thanks, uh, William. I, does anyone have a question? My 
question first. Thank you, Minister. Uh, like William, uh, we are also happy you are very well, Minister, but we'll be happier if you answer Deborah's question in the positive. <laughs> so you didn't actually tell us how your health is, but... <laughs> I, I thought I said my health was good. No, this, this was... I assume so. This is a former a fellow journalist taking the cue from Deborah. Uh, so, Minister, my question is about together or not together. What in your mind, Mr. Heng, is we are strongest at when it comes to being together, whether it's more mind share, mindset, politics, economics, social development, and where is it that we are least not together? And uh, where does our understanding, our approach towards aging stand? Thank you. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, uh, both very interesting questions. And first on uh, William's uh, question uh, on the, you know, whether we should set aside uh, some, uh, we should look at the signs of aging more and whether we should, in redesigning, uh, can we not be number one all the time? Can we, re can we have something in the budget to redesign jobs? Now, first, uh, on whether can we not be number one all the time, I think it, it depends on what being uh, what do we want to be number one in now if we are hyper competitive and we want to be number one in everything including being number one in being happy then of course it can be very stressful <laughs> you know but there are some areas which uh, many of you are you know corporate chiefs and you you work on this i've been observing the ict industry and all this uh, search engines and apps. And what is very interesting is that in some sectors of the economy, the network effect of being number one is confers a significant advantage. Nobody wants to go to the number two search engine because if the number one search engine gives you so much more. And when you are at that level, it becomes even more, the network effect is even greater. It's a little bit like, do you want to be a telephone company where you you only have two persons having the telephone. <laughs> you know, if you are a subscriber, I would want to go and join the telephone company that has got many more subscribers. And so in, in many industries, ICT is also changing the dynamics of competitiveness and that being number two even, sometimes don't give it advantage. And as a result of that, I've noticed that um, the way in which some companies are recruiting talent is that they go for the best. They put a huge amount of effort. I've met our students studying in the US, in Europe, and I asked them about job prospects. And they tell me how great an effort some of the global banks, global IT companies put to drawing them to these companies. And I said, why? He said, well, nobody wants to be number two, because if you are number two, you'll be out of business. And therefore, they also choose the number one in the class and therefore, a small group of people making a lot of, they're offering a lot of privileges and money to recruit that. Of course, there are then downstream effects in terms of wealth disparity and so on. But it is a, that nature of competition. And we, in many ways, have to, un, have to accept that global reality and not 
be careful not to, uh, uh, not to stop some of our companies from doing what is right because if they are number two and get decimated, the job losses in Singapore can be very significant. So we have to think about that. But does it mean that we have to be number one in everything? Not quite. And that your broader point, that are we able to find other sources of uh, satisfaction in life? The answer is absolutely yes. And uh, let me take this opportunity to thank William for your very good work in uh, spearheading the kindness movement. Uh, I've uh, participated in some of your activities. I've seen how many of our people, including many of our school uh, students, have uh, enjoyed the program and found it very meaningful. And I think the more we can find these other sources of uh, joy, the better it is for our society. And I'm quite confident that you know, today with a better educated uh, population, we do have a lot more scope to do many more things and not just uh, work, 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 you know, even though we take work seriously. Now, uh, on the uh, whether can we think of something at the budget about redesigning jobs? Uh, well, please be patient. We will see. Yeah, I certainly will discuss this uh, further with uh, Minister Lim Suise. Now, on Zainal's question about uh, you know, togetherness, and in fact, this is the theme of your conference. What are we strongest at? What are we least good at? Um, I would say that across um, different areas, we are not doing too badly. Uh, in particular, when, you, when we think about events that are happening elsewhere, there is a, 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 a certain desire in many places to, I mean, to assert their own identity. And identity politics have become more and more salient in many places. Whether it is about a sub-region seeking independence, that I know I, I, wouldn't, I do not want to be part of this country anymore because I want a greater sense of independence. Whether it is because of that stronger sense of identity or whether it is because of a sense of injustice, that my little, my province, my region, which is contributing a big part of the uh, wealth and GDP of this country, is not getting its fair share, and therefore I feel disenchanted and I want to go on our own. We don't have that, luckily, because this is a small place. And you, you know, it's difficult to say that uh, the centre of Singapore is the fastest growing region and people are benefiting versus the east or the west. We don't have that regional problem as much as you have in others. Uh, neither do we have this problem which in many places, in the name of free speech, in the name of you know, self-determination, that groups of people are asserting their identity because they feel unhappy with these global forces and you know, these anonymous forces that are reshaping their lives. And therefore, they go back, whether it's to race, language, religion, belief system or the fact that they are part of that uh, union, whether it's blue-collar versus white-collar and all that. You see that sort of disparity all over. Now, having said that, it is important for us not to take our social cohesion for granted. And in fact, we, there's still a lot that we have to work together. And how do we work together? My sense is that the sense of what being a Singaporean means to each and every one of us is going to be key. What is it that holds us together as Singaporeans? 
not a Singaporean of a particular race or a particular uh, economic group, you know, or uh, a particular set of beliefs. I think what we need to have is a belief in a Singapore ideal of, of some sort, a Singapore values of some sort that holds us together despite all the differences that we may have. We may believe in different gods, we may believe in different uh, sense of welfare system, we may believe in different ways of doing things, but the fact that we have a lot more together than we have uh, differences is going to be key to our future. And I hope that we can continue to discuss this issue. It's, it's going to be a very important issue. It will, differences will never go away. You can never, and we should never attempt to force our religion on another uh, person or our own belief system on another person. But the more we find common space, the more we can enlarge our common space, the better it is for us. And I do think that there are many things that we can do to enlarge our common space. Uh, and in particular, in our schools, you know, how do we create more opportunities for uh, social mixing of all kinds? Um, how do we make better use of the national service system which all males go through? We now have the youth call, and I'm very happy to see that the youth call takes people from all different groups. I'm very happy to see that I recently went to OBS to celebrate the OBS anniversary. And I'm very happy to see that MOE is sending school children from different schools to the same OBS program. So even though the students may be from different schools, they still interact. And that if you look at NUS, NTU, our SMU, our all our universities, that our students come from a wide range of schools. So going back to my point that when we talk about every school a good school, that every school creates opportunity for, to allow our students to develop to the best of their ability and that there's no dead end and that we must continue to keep that system fluid and encourage that mixing across all of our society. Thank you very much, Minister. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, could you please express our thanks to Minister in the usual manner. Thank you. It leaves me uh, to thank all of you. Uh, but before I conclude, let me tell you a story. Uh, this happened many years ago when Mikhail Gorbachev came into power in the Soviet Union, introduced perestroika and, and glasnost. And uh, the story is probably apocryphal, but it is too good not to be true. Um, he gathered the brightest brains in the Soviet Union and said, look, please go to London, find out all about how market economies function, what is capitalism about, what does Mrs. Thatcher mean? So a group of Soviet experts went to London and they were briefed. Uh, they visited the Bank of England, they visited the Treasury, uh, they went to the city, they spent a lot of time with professors at the London School of Economics and heard a lot about the complexity of running a market economy. And the leader of the team finally said, look, all this is very good, but let me tell you my problem. In the Soviet Union, We've been dealing with this problem for 60 years and we've never been able to solve it. We have the brightest people in the Soviet Union planning bread distribution. But even after 60 years of the revolution, we have not been able to solve the problem. Every morning, there's a huge long line waiting to buy bread. 
I've traveled around London for one week, and I haven't seen a single bread line anywhere. Never mind about Milton Friedman and monetarism and, and what Mrs. Thatcher means. What I want to see is the genius who is in charge of bread distribution. <laughs> of course, the answer is there is nobody in charge of bread distribution. So as Minister Heng reminded us, we live in the age of complexity. There are complex technologies, complex global systems. Government is complex. And there is nobody in charge of bread distribution, not even the government. And if there's one thing I hope we take away from this conference, we are dealing with very complex problems. Our changing demography does kick up very, very complex problems uh, and challenges. But government can be the place where people are brought together, but government can't be the solution to all our problems. So thank you very much for attending this conference and for being such a good audience. I would like to thank the team that put this together, beginning with Christopher Gee and his um, able assistants, Yvonne and Feng Xing, um, who conceptualized this conference, got the speakers, and not least, wrote the background paper that all of you have. Um, I want to thank the events team, Seling, uh, uh, Seling, who's not here. She was working on this event up to four days ago when she suddenly had to leave to deliver her second child and raise somewhat <laughs> our dependency ratio. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, the team leader, and Zahida. And um, a special word of thanks to my money collector, Hansen. Um, he exercises considerable charm and got this long list of sponsors. I'm very grateful to him, and I'm very grateful to all our sponsors. Uh, and finally, the very able admin team led by my redoubtable deputy director, uh, Irene Lim, and finally to all of you, and Minister Heng, and uh, the moderators, especially Deborah, um, uh, for gracing this occasion. Thank you very much, and good night. Thank you.